And that caused bankruptcies. People were, um, two people in China were executed um, associated oh, with that. Yeah. Um, oh I was going to ask if there were repercussions. I didn't yeah. realize that there were yeah. repercussions. Yeah. Welcome to the catch up. Introducing your hosts, Eli Aruth, editor in chief, and Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously. Of the craziest, most bestest, news breaking, food porn peddling, viral website on the dot coms. It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy. There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. All right. And welcome to the catch up. All right, Jeff. I can't shake this quote from a book that I didn't read. Uh It's called Real Food, Fake Food. That when eating sushi, quote unquote, consumers ordering white tuna get a completely different animal. No kind of tuna at all. 94% of the time. Is that... Like, you eat sushi a lot, so that's also something where that directly affects you. It was disconcerting a bit. I was like, oh, I'm ordering this food and it's not what's coming out. But then I realized I still enjoyed it. So now I'm just curious as to like if that's even a big deal or not. Do you remember when I used to write for the site circa a decade ago? Yeah, before you had other responsibilities. Yeah, yeah. So in, in 2012, I wrote about an Oceana study, a study about the majority, over 50% of fish gathered in the Southern California area being mislabeled with 100% of all red Jeez. snapper was labeled wrong in this study. But lucky for us, we have an esteemed guest Dr. Rosalie Helberg to break down what's happening in the food industry. As a professor at Chapman University within the Schmidt College of Science and Technology, she's an expert in food science and food mislabeling. Her published papers have both industry and pop culture acclaim across fish and meat mm-hmm. and other subjects, including widespread media coverage in the Daily Mail, Today, and more. And even in the preparation of our podcast, uh, Eli started calling you the Jack Ryan of food fraud. <laughs> so, Dr. Rosalie Helberg, welcome to the catch-up. Thanks for having me. Can I ask you a quick question, doctor? Who did you wrong in the past? Why, how did you get into food fraud? Like, Who served you like lamb falafel and passed it off to some real Lebanese food? And you were like, you know what? I'm going to make it my life's work for this to never happen to anyone again. What's the deal? Actually, I was never like it was never that, you know, I initially for my Ph.D. work, my professor asked me to look into some um, potential research topics involving differentiating salmon species. So we were I worked in the seafood laboratory at Oregon State University. And so for my thesis, I started realizing there wasn't a nice rapid method for differentiation of salmon. So some people don't realize this, but there's actually about five to six different salmon species that are out on the commercial market. So if it says it's Pacific salmon, it could be coho, it could be uh, chinook, it could be sockeye, it could be pink salmon, chum salmon, and then you have the farmed salmon, which is primarily Atlantic salmon. So it's six different salmon species, not to mention rainbow trout. 
Um, and so, yeah, a lot of people just think, you know, it's Pacific salmon or it's Atlantic salmon, but no, there's more intricacies and the various salmon species, like the Pacific salmon species, they go for very different prices. So for example, Chinook salmon is usually the top seller, um, especially if you have like the heavily marketed kinds of Chinook salmon, or it's also called King salmon. Yeah. Mm. Um, so Copper River King salmon goes, can go for like $50 a pound. Um, pink salmon, on the other hand, chum salmon, those go for much lower prices. Um, so going back to my thesis work, I was like, okay, we need to get a better way to test for these different species. Because once you break it down, for example, I have this piece of smoked salmon. If you go look at a smoked salmon in the store, how can you tell what species that is, right? And they could be selling it for various prices depending on what species they claim. Um, so for my PhD work, I actually developed some rapid DNA tests to quickly say if it's, you know, coho, chinook, whichever species it is, and you can go out and test market products. So how are they, how are they distinguishing that before? So before, let's say I go to a Costco or I go to my Ralph's and you see the salmon out there. Which you'll see the descriptor king, right? You'll, mm -hmm. which... Uh, for me, I have no idea what it means outside of good. <laughs> right? Yeah. That, uh, oh, king salmon? Oh, it's in the nice display? Yes, the big salmon. Oh, yeah. If it's the not, my girlfriend will love this. Yeah, that's what goes on in my head. Like the king ruled the seafood <laughs> kingdom. Like, so that's got to be the good salmon. Like, uh, what stage is it? Is it the guy behind the counter that should know where this is from? Is it the person who's sourcing for all the Ralphs and Albertsons? Because you noticed that there was no way to rapidly detect. Was that on the consumer end? Like the consumer has no way to kind of verify what they're eating? Correct. So ideally everyone in the supply chain, so like the fishermen, um, the distributor, the supplier, importer or exporter, the percent, the retail level, they should all have a record of what species that is and they should all know what the species is. But in the real world, sometimes it doesn't work that way. So at one point in the supply chain, if somebody switches the name on the species, so maybe they're getting something called chum salmon and they say, oh, I'm going to call this Chinook. I'm going to can it or um, smoke it or you know break it down so it's harder to tell the difference. And then I'm going to sell it to the grocery store, for example, as Chinook for a higher price. So is it is it nefarious what they're doing? Or is it, is it, why, why are they doing that? Are they trying to save a buck? That's a great question. So that's a big thing that we think about in my research studies because we do a lot of market surveys. And a lot of times we'll find some sort of fraud going on or mislabeling. And when you find mislabeling, sometimes it may not be intentional. Mm -hmm. It may be accidental. So somebody may be um, mixed up. You Maybe you had like the product next to another, you know, Chinook and Chum next to each other and you grabbed the wrong one. Sometimes that can happen. Um, other times it is intentional. And when it's intentional, that's when it's called food fraud because mm. somebody is intentionally defrauding you for economic gain. Mm. So they're, they're saying, okay, I can make a profit by switching the label on this. So when we see in my studies, when we see, you know, especially one specific um, retail place that we see multiple swaps that are all economic incentivized, then it's like, okay, this is probably uh, fraud going on. Other times we see where there's actually a, a swap or mixed mixture that doesn't make sense economically. Like the product that, you know, they're, they're claiming it is, is actually cheaper than the product that they put, 
put so inside. That's that's a question I had because we we wrote an article recently about uh, the use of or the uncovering the use of shark in fish and chips out in the UK. Oh, and I, all of the literature that I've seen, including the stuff on our site, was that there was this quote unquote fraud going on about shark that's both endangered to or my knowledge yeah. or threatened being used in fish and chips. And the co- the little context that I had was that, you know, if shark was once sustainable and it's no longer sustainable, I don't eat shark. I don't know if it tastes better than the other fish on the market. I don't know if it costs more, but like I'm going to assume it costs more because it's less prevalent and thus just the scarcity does that. But what no one was asking is, is why shark was in the fish and chips to begin with. So like fish and chips isn't a particularly expensive dish to go after. It's a after. commoditized food. So like why why is that being defrauded? <laughs> like why are we throwing it's like it's like serving foie gras here, like slipping it into a Big Mac. Like <laughs> thank you. Like, <laughs> like should I be upset? Or I guess like if you have if you feel some type of way about animal compassion then yeah, I don't want foie gras in there. But let's say you don't care, or you're just at, you believe where your foie gras came from, and you just you're now getting a higher quality, delicious, more expensive meat into a Big Mac. Like something didn't make sense, and I, I feel like people don't aren't asking enough questions about why they should care about food fraud. And doctor, I'm wondering if you think it's food fraud if they're just being lazy, <laughs> right? Like oh, we caught all this fish and this shark. And this shark will roughly taste the same as this fish. So we're just going to process this whole batch because we're not just going to throw away this shark that we caught. Is that food fraud too? Because, I mean, it's still technically for monetary gain, but it also, the end consumer may or may not care unless they're a part of animal activism. Because if I was in the UK eating fish and chips and it tasted like fish and chips... I don't care. I'm, I'm, it's great. Um, mm-hmm. But I wouldn't think that, oh, is this a totally different or endangered species? Yeah. And so if you look at the definition of food fraud, I would say that does fall under food fraud. If, as long as the person is intentionally um, defrauding the consumer and they're, they're still getting some sort of economic gain out of it by just, you know, using that, say, shark meat that may not have been utilized otherwise. And a lot of sharks are caught as bycatch in fisheries, mm-hmm. so they may um, not have been reported as catch, and maybe the um, fishermen or suppliers, you know, trying to figure out what to do with it and just throw it into some fish and chips. I actually did not see that report. Was, was that recent? Yeah. yeah, pretty recent. I okay. think we covered it within the last week. Oh, okay. Yeah, and the deeper source was this scientific journal called Nature, and they found 78 different samples of shark meat product found at different fish and chip shops around the UK. Wow. So again, for us, for me and Jeff and people listening, like we're just trying to understand like the gravity of this. And I know you, you've done so much work in the space. Like what, what are the different things we should care about within food fraud? Like you mentioned economic, what are other things people should care about just to give us these bubbles that we can work within? Yeah. And that's a really good point. Cause a lot of consumers will say, okay, so, for example, like we found um, ground meats where you have a little bit of pork mixed in mm-hmm. with your chicken or something. And some consumers are like, I don't care. You know, it's mostly chicken and it tastes fine to me. And what's the big deal? Um, but it com- turns out there's actually a lot of other problems with food fraud besides just economics. So one 
um, big thing is health concerns. Mm. Um, there's a variety of health concerns when you start messing with the labels and putting undeclared things in products. Um, for example, allergies. So some people are actually allergic to red meat. Mm. Um, so if you have like pork or beef mixed in with a chicken product, then that's going to be um, an issue for those people. Uh, you can also have um, seafood allergies mm. again. And then there have been some really interesting other types of health issues. So one, you talked about Escalar at the beginning, yeah. um, white tuna, right? <laughs> yeah, so yeah. You go to a sushi restaurant, you order white tuna. Studies have found a lot of times that's Escalar. Um, and Escalar actually has a toxin. It's called Gempylotoxin. Mm. Um, and it can cause um, a lot of stomach discomfort makes if you, you eat too much. Yeah, yeah it, it has a laxative effect. There's a diuretic effect. quality. I remember <laughs> yeah. writing about that too. <laughs> so that's one of the examples. Another example that's more serious was, um, I think it was about 15 years ago now, there was some um, puffer fish. Have you ever had puffer fish? We have had puffer fish actually. Oh, remember? yeah. Yeah, we I'm went to Los this. Angeles. Yep. We did have it okay. once as anyway, part, as we're part still of alive. this like, wild and bizarre <laughs> foods tour in L.A. that we experienced. But what did you think of it? Fine. Yeah, fine. Yeah, I think <laughs> the, the majority of the food that we experienced on that tour, whether it was puffer fish or live octopus or frog, everything with an open mind tastes... I mean, it really kind of comes down to the seasoning and preparation of it. But the puffer fish, I just remember being like, cool. I think well for those at home, puffer fish is uh, poisonous, right? Like mm -hmm. it has so that's what that's why it was exciting for us. Like we'll go and if someone that preps it properly can whatever get rid of the poison and serve it to us in a way. So we said fine because it tasted okay and it just didn't kill us. So that's why it was. <laughs> but fine. it is an intimidating fit. Like. Don't prepare it at home. <laughs> right, yeah, 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 I don't even know. So the octopus I liked, like it was live octopus that got chopped from the, and it kind of like wiggles around in your mouth. I like that. If you're going to go for something, go for that. Sure. Um, but anyway, puffer fish you mentioned? Yeah, okay. So puffer fish. <laughs> um, so as you guys mentioned, it can be dangerous. It can be deadly if it's not prepared correctly because it has a neurotoxin um, called tetrodotoxin. Um, and there's really strict import restrictions on it. So it has to be prepared or coming from specific sources. And to get around those, um, somebody illegally, they called, they took puffer fish and called it monkfish, which monkfish mm. doesn't have those restrictions. Oh, so they imported this monkfish, quotes, <laughs> um, and distributed it to um, numerous locations throughout the U.S. And people, some people actually got really sick um, because they bought it. it. It hadn't been properly prepared, and they brought it home and made some fish soup and got really sick from that. So that's an example of, you know, you have some public health concerns. Um, on a much larger scale, I don't know if you guys heard the melamine incidents. This happened about 10 years ago. No. Um, and this was really a trigger point that got a lot of people in the food industry really concerned about food fraud because it was an example of where somebody commits an act for economic gain, but there's also a major health um, problem, you know, m public health issue associated with it. So melamine is a industrial chemical. It's used in plastics, for example. It's not supposed to be used in food. Um, and interestingly, it's high in nitrogen content. Protein is also high in nitrogen content. Mm. So when people test the protein content of foods, they actually just test for nitrogen. And some smart fraudsters in China figured this out. 
Um, they started putting melamine in wow. their dog food product, in an ingredient for dog food and cat food. Um, they put the melamine in instead of protein. So it was still pr- oh. passing these high protein tests. They're selling it just fine, um, but it had melamine. Now, melamine and its related compounds, when they get in your body, they can cause kidney damage and even death. Um, so actually, this got distributed to the U.S. I think there are 150 different brands of pet foods that got sent out. Thousands of animals died. There's, there's not like confirmed to be related to that, but they're thought to have been because of that. And it was interesting, there was, they were doing, I don't know if you know, they do sensory testing with pets. So like they had a panel of cats testing this pet food to see if they liked it. Um, and all the cats got sick. So that's where they, one of the clues, you know, that it was the dog food or the pet food was contaminated. So, so it's a big part of why we need to label food correctly to be able to trace back core ingredients to manufacturers, suppliers, or wherever the source was from. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. So you want to, you want to have a good, you know, be able to go back all the way back to the source. Um, and you want consistent labeling throughout. Um, so after the, the pet food incident, there was a much, even, um, not much greater, but a really horrible health scare from melamine in China from infant formula. So Mm -hmm. they, we're at also adding melamine to infant formula. Same idea to get the protein up. Like yeah. Using, wow. yeah. And okay. um, I, I think it was like hundreds of thousands of babies got sick and six babies actually died um, as a result of that. So that was just, you know, a really good example of how horrible food fraud can be in the public health sector. Um, so even though, you know, it's like, oh, who cares? They're just making a, a you know, a quick buck and substituting some ingredients, you can actually have unintentional um, major health problems. So we've kind of talked about, I mean, milk, pet food, salmon. What categories of food are most like ripe for food fraud? Is it fish? Is it, and why? Like what, what, what is the, because you've, we've now talked about completely different categories, but uh-huh. like which one's most ripe for food fraud? <laughs> Yeah, that's a, a thing that a lot of people want to know. And it's hard it's hard to really quantify food fraud because we don't know what we don't know, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of a fraud out there that we may not even know about. Um, but in general, some of the main categories are going to be seafood. Um, alcohol is a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, olive oil, oils. Um, wherever you have honey, um, spices. So where you ever have, wherever you have something that's like highly valued or you could sell something um, for a high price, but then there's also products, you know, similar products that are much lower price, then it's um, t- very tempting for people to mix or substitute. Can we talk booze? Because you brought, you brought a <laughs> bottle of wine. Uh-huh. It doesn't really matter what the brand is. <laughs> but I've heard some things about wine fraud. What, enlighten me. Why, why is there a bottle of wine here on the table? Okay. Yeah. So I actually brought wine and chocolate in part because of the Valentine's Day theme. Uh, So while you're eating your chocolate, drinking your wine, you can think about this. Maybe not so romantic, but... um. (laughs) You guys prep, baby. Put this podcast on during the Depends on the couple. Could be seriously romantic. This this episode comes out on Valentine's Day, which is perfect. Okay, cool. 
Um, so with wine, there's a lot of um, possibilities for fraud. Um, some of the most common are going to be mixing um, finished wines. So you take one type of wine, another type, and mix them together. Um, you could take like a more valuable one and kind of dilute it with some lower cost wine, mix mm. that in. Um, there's also mislabeling of like the geographic origin, the year. Um, How do they get away with that? How do... <laughs> Well, I'm assuming, I'm, I'm assuming they get away with it because consumers don't have a way to say anything different. Yeah, is that or, it? And, I mean, and is that... or we're not asking. Maybe a combination of both. Cause, right. Because, like, is it a price thing? So is it – because there's a lot of people out there like, all right, well, if you want good sushi, go pay high price for it. Mm-hmm. Like, But I've been trained just, like, being a foodie and being at Food Beast, it's not always, like – what you're paying the most for is immediately the cosign that it's going to be good for you or that it's quality or anything. You're paying for a lot of the frills around it. Sometimes you're paying for the hype around stuff. So in wine specifically, what can we do? Like as a wine consumer, as a drinker, like if I'm going to Disneyland getting a glass of wine, am I questioning the girl behind the counter? That's like, yo, where does wine come from? How do you know? (laughs) Like, what are we doing? What can we do to drink better? Well, I mean, if you're if you're out somewhere like Disneyland getting a glass of wine, like you said, it's going to be pretty difficult to verify right the source of the wine. Um, one thing you can do, though, in a broader sense, is look at the companies you're buying from, look at their values, um, see if they're you know you can ask the representatives of the company what they're doing about food fraud or to prevent fraud. Um, and some companies highly value; they're very pro. Um, authentic foods. So they really want to make sure they they are producing pure foods and their labels are accurate. Um, And they'll do extra work with their suppliers to make sure they'll do extra testing um, to help verify the authenticity of the food. Um, So you can look at um, reputable, using reputable companies, um, asking questions is good, becoming familiar with the food product or the wine um, or in this example is important. So um, I really like seafood for, and so I become very familiar with the seafood, like salmon. I eat a lot of salmon and I can tell, you know, if it's farm salmon, usually I can tell if it's farm salmon or wild salmon just by looking at it, tasting it. So as a consumer, you be, you want to, you know, take note of how it tastes, how it smells, how it looks, what the pricing usually is, what the labels look like. And if you see something that's kind of out of whack, you know, like, something that just doesn't look right on the label or the price doesn't match, um, that's usually a, an indicator that it might be a fraudulent project product. Is there a product, a, f- a meat product or a fish or a beverage that you think has become so mislabeled that consumers are actually in danger of knowing what the original food or beverage actually tastes like? <laughs> like... Because when we reported on Snapper, right, yeah. which was in that Oceana study, 100% of the samples were mislabeled. And we have no idea and, what Snapper tastes like. And then, then I had to think about it, right? Because I've definitely ordered Snapper at restaurants. Does that mean that I've actually never had Snapper? And so I'm, I'm curious, Doctor, with what you've seen, has it ever gotten to the point where the thing that we're accepting is maybe not even the thing at all. Yeah, that's a good point. So like with Red Snapper, 
multiple studies have found most of the time it's not red snapper. And we actually just completed a study in my lab. We tested fish at grocery stores in Southern California. And again, red snapper was not red snapper, right? So just every study you see, it's just not coming out is not red snapper. So that's an instance where we probably, you know, I've never had real red snapper. <laughs> you know, we don't know what that tastes like. That's nuts. <laughs> Where do you eat sushi? How do you, <laughs> like, you live in Southern California. Like, where, where, where do you go for sushi and why do you go there? Well, I actually have two young kids. So mm-hmm. we're pretty much restricted to going to the sushi restaurant that has, like, the train that comes out. That's awesome. I love it. Does the, does the work that you're doing uh at the university come into kind of like the practical life side of where you're eating because i think that's where eli's question is right is is that something where as a consumer you're going into the restaurant and asking about sourcing um is that something that you do regularly and is that something that you would encourage more people to do that's something that I would encourage people to do, to ask questions if you're curious. You know, a lot of times if you have like an expense, really expensive seafood item on the menu, um, it sometimes has some funny labeling and you want to ask a little bit about, you know, is this really um, from this, we you know where it says it is. Um, like sea bass is commonly like really expensive, but sometimes it's not really what it says it is. Um, on my end, I don't ask questions enough. I because of my experience, I usually just avoid those products that I know, are, you know, if it says red snapper on the menu, I'm not going to order it sure. because I just, um, the odds of you getting it right, are pretty low. You're not yeah. going to grill that waiter over like, cause you know, the red snapper yeah. fake, like where's the red snapper from? <laughs> What's the species name of this? <laughs> yeah. So, so. Do, is it, is it good practice? Like say it's sushi and you're talking about, uh, place where it comes out on a train that I've definitely been to a couple of those. <laughs> um, and when it comes to your table, do you just like avoid the stuff that you know is going to be fraudulent? Like uh, the, some of the more expensive stuff, I'm assuming that's what gets knocked off, but no one's knocking off maybe like a cheaper type of fish or. Yeah. I mean, I usually stick to um, like salmon or um, some of the more the safer kind of items. I mean, of course, it's fun to try new things, and mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not discouraging that. It's just um, sometimes if the if it's super expensive, you do want to kind of ask, like, is this really worth this extra um, price? Going going outside of the sushi restaurant, what are the foods that you're specifically avoiding? Because, I mean, you have this knowledge base that this the average person doesn't, right? I mean. We knew about red snapper per se, but that's probably the only thing that would ever be top of mind for me. What are the other foods that when you see you're avoiding because you, you're not sure about their authenticity? Um, so I don't avoid too many foods, but one that's kind of interesting, I already avoid anyways because I don't eat meat, um, but the game meats. So that's one that I would encourage really look into your supplier if you're if you're purchasing game meats. Um, so one of my studies we um, tested, we just ordered, we found like four online distributors of game meats and ordered all these game meats online, right? So I'd get these big boxes full of like lion meat and bear meat and crocodile and my dog would just go crazy. <laughs> one of the boxes arrived and all the meats had thawed and it was dripping blood. Um, 
Unfortunately, I wasn't home, so my husband had to deal with it. He ran it to the bathtub, but the dog was going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that's a side story. Um, so the game meets we tested, um, we found about one in five weren't what they said. They were complete substitution. So it would say, the one of the really weird ones we found, it said it was bear meat. It was beaver meat. <laughs> well, and, you know, who... I, mean, I guess I won't be able to know. tell the difference. Yeah. <laughs> if you're Joe Rogan and it's your breakfast every morning to have elk, you'll know the difference. But like, I won't know beaver and bear. Yeah. I won't know the difference. No idea. So that was a really weird one. And we found that in multiple products from that um, company. We tested like, I think it was like bear patties, you know, ground up bear meat. And it was also beaver. Um, so they're consistently substituting that. Yo, who's is that, that company? Call them out right now. <laughs> well, because that, that's my question is when you see blatant misrepresentation like that what's next well, what yeah, do you do? It, outside of the science of what you do is there a morale issue with do you do you contact them like do you do you have to sit on that information because you're trying to present objective findings like where do you sit in all that because man i I would love to know what what company is doing that to be able to tell people to avoid it. But at the same time, I don't know if there's a, I don't know, a line that's crossed in in your scientific research either. Good. Yeah, that's uh, something that we think about a lot as researchers. You know, we're just trying to report our findings, but a lot of people want to know more. Um, and where do we where do we draw the line in terms of calling out the baddies? You know, mm. the the um, companies that are selling fraudulent food. So what our take on it is that we're kind of conducting these baseline studies. So nobody had done a big game meat study. So we did this to see, is there a, a problem in this area? And yes, there was. So then we, um, what we do, we um, publish our results in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, a press release goes out to raise awareness of the issue. And then um, if the FDA or USDA is interested in pursuing any of the cases, we'll give the information on the actual companies to them. Mm. So, for example, um, in our ground meat study, we tested a bunch of ground meats, and we found two of them had horse in them. Oh, that was, is this the big horse gate scandal <laughs> <No>. <laughs> of <laughs> no, the so, early 2020s? <laughs> so horse gate happened um, before our study, um, and it was in the UK. And we can talk more about that because it's really interesting. Um, but we were doing a study in the U.S. and we were, you know, because of that scandal, we were we were testing horse for horse in the products, and we did find two um, products with horse. So horse is is not allowed to be in um, sold as human for human consumption in the U.S. It's not allowed to be slaughtered for human consumption, and it can't make its way into food for human consumption. I just realized how wildly inappropriate my Kentucky Derby shirt is right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, the, is the U.S. a, a flav, flagrant example of food mislabeling when you're looking at trends across the world? Because a number of your papers cite different studies of whether it was in South Africa or in the U.K. that have their own problems. When you look at what you know of the United States, do we get a B minus on our report card? Are we failing? When, when you're looking at worldwide studies, how do we sit as a country? That's a really hard um, thing to assess because sure. what happens is there's a lot of awareness about it in the U.S. So then you start to think, oh, are, do we have a lot of fraudulent food? 
probably not compared to other countries. It's just that there's more tests. You know, my studies are coming out. We're testing. We're finding this. Um, other countries may not have anybody publishing on this topic or releasing the information, and they may have rampant mislabeling going on. Um, and sometimes the government is more encouraged, you know, the, not encouraging of mislabeling or fraud, but they don't um, penalize it so much. Um, they're afraid to because it can stifle economic growth. So like in developing countries, you may have a lot of fraud going on, but nobody wants to publicize that. That was happening like on my last trip to Lebanon. We would go and there's there's a culture of wanting to eat from the fat of the land. You go up to the villages, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, all that. But then there was a my family would not let me eat at just any restaurant because I think the the general infrastructure there is not to have there's no grading system. We don't have A, B, C, D on the on the restaurant. So intrinsically, just out of the gate, it's better here than there because at least there's some infrastructure to try to police it and i was like well why don't they stop them from doing it? like well the country's in shambles like there's other things to worry about than if you had trace bits of pork in your in your ground burger patty like that mm -hmm. it's it's it almost becomes like there's a stigma against trying to find out more about it because there are on paper more pressing i hate to say issues going on than cool if this guy's going to cut a few corners just don't go to his restaurant choose with your dollar but i feel like that's exactly what's going on in terms of not wanting to stifle people going out to restaurants like just shut up and don't talk about it mm -hmm. does that change if we change the question to like first world developed countries at all for you knowing that countries that don't have an infrastructure for labeling or don't have the equivalent of a usda or an fda or anything like that you know can be seriously rampant because there's nothing to regulate them otherwise but when you compare us to canada to the uk to south africa is that something like just based on what you've seen i'm wondering what your gut opinion on how we're doing because i have i have no i have no context because you're right doctor when when we read your pa papers like the reason one of the reasons that the content from different media outlets perform so well is because some of this is pretty scary, right? I don't want to order something that is something else and happens to be uh, a chemical that's meant for plastics and it's instead in baby formula, right? You hear about that and you immediately want to tell someone about it to make sure that they're safe and that they're okay. Um, but is food mislabeling a, a super niche category that should be improved, but also isn't a crazy widespread problem that we need everyone to focus on? I've, I don't know where it sits from one extreme to another. Yeah, so in the U.S., it's, um, like I said, since the melamine incidents, there's been more focus on food fraud globally. Um, and in the EU, in Europe, they've done a lot of work. There's a lot more funding going towards preventing food fraud and detecting food fraud. In the U.S., there's not as much. There's not a lot of resources at the government level being directed towards it. Um, so I did work at FDA um, before Chapman. And when I was working there, they, they did start implementing a seafood testing program for testing specifically for fraudulent seafood. Um, but there's not a lot of resources for it. So a very, very small percentage of fish were being tested um, for that. And the problem is um, there's much more focus on food safety in terms of like testing for 
pathogens like salmonella or E. coli in our food because those are the main cause of foodborne illness in the U.S. Um, so there's less attention given towards food fraud because, um, like we've talked about a lot, there's people think about it more as like the economic issues. And even though there are food safety issues, it's they're not as prevalent as the pathogen as the pathogens. So in the government, U.S. government, there's just not a lot of resources. And even in research, there's not a lot of funding for this. Mm -hmm. So um, there's not a lot of researchers in the U.S. testing for food fraud because there's there's no like big funding body saying, oh, I'll give you all this money to go test for food yeah, fraud. Yeah, like who, who would give you that money? It's, 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 it's a <laughs> Yeah, not the thing. food industry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, I'm Tyson. Please look into how we're defrauding people. Like, yeah. I can't imagine how, you know, you have a team at Chapman, but like you guys have to go through these funding rounds mm -hmm. of, you know, and, and at what point is there success in your research to the point where someone, like what industry is going to be like, damn, what doctor's doing over there at Chapman, we need to give her more money to do that. Well, I mean, and this came up during the wine conversation is what I do imagine is the brands that are being transparent Ooh. that do really care about their industry and they want the corresponding product next to them that's being sold for the same premium price point. Call them out. Call yeah. them out. So mm -hmm. I would see that as at least a major incentive for the brands that do care and want the best for the consumer. Well, then I think there's an incentive to also, you know, supply funding for that research because that's the products you want to see. Um, but other than that, yeah, I think the with the Internet, right, there's more transparency in food than ever before, because before. I mean, even if there were documented reports, right. The people reading those reports might have been specifically within education or, or post-education. Like, would Eli and Jeff of the 1980s be reading articles about those reports? Like, I don't, I don't know. No, until it hits the food that we care about. But Dr. Hubbard, this is why you are the James Bond of the <laughs> Like, you have to decide who's funding you. Is it the government? Or do you have to go rogue? Like, at what point is your... Because I think that was a fascinating question, Jeff, just about, like, at what point do you call out the people that yeah. are the, or the companies or brands that are definitely the ones that are intentionally frauding people out of food that we thought we were paying for, we're getting something else. If we're not calling them out, what's what's the bet? Like, if, there's, if it's going too slow and you... But I can't imagine a world where now, like, wine company a that's doing everything pristinely funds you to discourage wine companies b and c from creating more fraudulent product like that's that's interesting it's just like the incentive to continue to research food fraud yeah and some of the ways in which some of the you know the companies that are pro-transparency and want to authenticate their food supply some of the funding um in that area can come from them wanting um advanced analytical methods so laboratory testing to verify their the ingredients that they're that are coming in mm. so that's one area um, where they can help support you know food fraud research is in terms of um, making sure that the tests they're using are advanced um, before we move on i also did want to mention oceana you guys have brought them up several times yeah. and they have actually they have a whole campaign against seafood fraud. So that's another way, you know, that they're helping to raise public awareness about the issue. Um, and they're a nonprofit group. So um, 
that's a just another area where food fraud is getting some attention is from them, thanks to all their press releases. And while we're talking about press releases, does the scientific community have an inherent problem with promoting a lot of key findings? Because here's why I'm asking. The stuff that gets run on Food Beast and the stuff that we see on Today and the stuff that we see on Daily Mail tends to have some pretty extreme figures to get a headline in, right? So um, if we're talking about uh, even, you know, your your horse study, the fact that they could put horse in a headline is going to make the entire U.S., you know, pivot pivot their head and be like, what's going on? Am I eating horse meat? And part of that's the framing from Daily Mail and part of that's the study itself. But I imagine there's tens of thousands of studies that are doing incredible work that that press release falls on deaf ears because it doesn't necessarily make sense for a headline. And I know you had mentioned just in this conversation that when you guys do a study, you do send a press release out, but how successful is is that? And do there need to be more mediums to promote studies outside of the scientific journals? Because again, I I search for knowledge when we, we knew we were bringing it on the podcast. I was excited to read your work and your papers, but before I read your papers, it might have been five or six years before I've actually read a scientific paper of, of almost any kind. And I don't think I'm in the minority. I think I'm in the majority. So how how can you how can scientists like you continue to publicize your work for for the average person to see here and feel something from that? Yeah, and that's something that scientists across the board struggle with in terms of how do we communicate with the public about the importance of our work? Because we're just, you know, in our own little laboratories and doing our little thing. And then we publish this really detailed scientific study and that's all what we're comfortable with. But going out into the public and talking to them about our research and um, making it in sound interesting rather than just, you know, using all of the scientific jargon can be very challenging. And it's also scary because um, like you were saying, like media looks for those flashy headlines. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times there's the danger of your work getting distorted and um, misconstrued and then represented wrongly, you know. Um, so it's scary to go out there and do that, but I think it's very important. And I think other than the press releases, a great example is what we're doing today is just having like a podcast where you can actually talk to someone that did the research and talk in more of like a casual manner about what the research actually means. Um, I think, you know, going out in the public and talking is really important as, as opposed to just having like a press release on paper. I have a question. So as a writer at times here at Food Beast, when we receive a press release or we're trying to synthesize a new study that comes out, particularly on food fraud, Sometimes you'll see these varying percentages or you won't see a percentage about, let's say, horse meat. So like if we can dive deeper into the horse meat stuff, like if it was, say, ground beef that was created and put together on a uh, conveyor belt that has trace 
findings of horse meat? At what point does fraudulence occur? Is it basically the same idea as when you buy a, a seafood item and then it was like, oh, this was developed on the same tray as like packing nuts. So if you have a nut allergy, there might be some stray nut, but it, they're not they're not cheating you into believing the salmon is full of peanuts. It's just might have been created there. I think that's like a, a little bit of the hyperbole that media picks up on and they kind of take to the nth degree like, oh, horse meat, trace me. Your one in five burgers in America has horse meat. <laughs> that's literally a headline on the Daily Mail where you should question all the burgers out there. And so help us find, let's talk through what those percentages is. Like what makes something fraudulent? Let's just use horse meat as an example. Walk us through that scandal. Okay, so, um, well, in the UK, the scandal was where the there was this, um, I think, a slaughterhouse in Romania that was actually slaughtering horses, and Shit. the horses were then labeled as beef, and they made their way, th- they had a really complex supply chain, so it went through multiple countries in Europe, ended up at this processor in, in France who received it labeled as beef and incorporated into things like beef, frozen beef lasagna, um, but it was actually, in some cases, 100% horse. So in that instance, you know, that's true fraud, where you have somebody swapped the product, mislabeled it, and made a profit because um, the horse sells for cheaper than beef. Um, and then unknowing consumers in the UK were, you know, eating this product and thinking it was beef. Um, so that was a huge scandal that um, came out. And then in my study, we found like I mentioned, two products, I think it was bison and maybe lamb um, that had tested positive for horse. But like you're saying, that doesn't mean it was 100% horse because they did test positive for other species as well. So it was like some ground lamb with some residual horse. Mm. Um, our, the, it's really difficult to quantify the species when you're doing running analytical testing that takes like a more advanced method so we were just doing like a basic screening method and we found that but most likely i would imagine what happened is like you're saying there's some residual horse from the in the processing facility that gets into the um, next product that gets ground right so yeah and and you're asking if that's fraud well, right. I, I'm asking if... Like, what's the line? Because, <laughs> like, should we be mad that there's horse elements in ground beef? Like, because personally, I don't give a fuck. Like, I don't care. <laughs> if it tastes the same, then People I... People ate it and, at one time. And, like, yeah, and I also think it's weird that most likely because of a Texan horse lobby, like, we can't slaughter horses in the U.S., even though if it tastes the same as beef because there's a culture aspect to it. Again, I never got raised with horses. I understand there's a big community that doesn't want them slaughtered. I think it's fine to feel that way. But I think when we're talking about it in general, the difference to me between a cow and a horse is cultural. Spicy. It's you're a, like you're a cat. I guess you were a cow, like you can ride a horse and it will, you can travel far. Like that's the, <laughs> that's, that's why they became part of American culture. But I don't get why it's that different outside of congressmen in certain states started to pressure these um, typically French and Belgian slaughterhouses in different parts of the country to say, don't do it because people are pissed. My contingency is pissed. 
But other than that, like, what's what's the actual difference? I don't know. Well, I'm assuming there's just this Venn diagram of bubbles around fraudulence. So, again, we might not care that there's a stray horse in there because we're not allergic to it. It's not against our particular religion. And so it's okay. We give it a pass. But someone needs to be drawing some lines for if in the future there is no line, then more people could get sick more people get defrauded out of the money. So it's like almost like we just have to set these lines earlier on. And that's like through your studies, through that work. Otherwise, it just it's kind of like if you're allowed to lie once. Cool, you didn't hurt anyone right now. I'm not going to punch you in the face. But if there's that culture of being able to lie over and over and it just gets out of hand, then everything is a lie and then we lose it. And don't get me wrong. I want those lines to be set. But I also think that the average consumer can only can only process so much information. Right. Like the products that we get now, I'm at Costco and I'm looking at something, right? And I'm like, man, should I get this new product? I'm absorbing the brand name. I'm absorbing this is something that's distributed and sold by Costco. Okay, so I'm probably going, there's a degree of validation there. Then I'm going back to the nutritional panel. And then I'm going, how... How much calories is there? How much fat is there? How much sugar is there? And then for families like my cousin's family, who are who has two sons, both deathly allergic to basically all nuts or all tree nuts or whatever it is, they go down further down the label to see if there's like whatever the stamp is, whatever the this has trace elements of this is, right? You need to know those. And that's what I'm just saying is like, what's the line? Because if there's now on my package of eight ounces of beef, all that information, and then on top of that, there needs to be another sentence of like, this was processed at a facility with like pork. In addition to this pork product was next to peanuts. In addition to whatever, I get why it's there, but like, is it going to be successful in communicating? And what's that line for communicating? To me, unless there's rampant horse allergies, I don't know. Like, I care. I I do care. I don't. I don't want. I care about your studies. I care about the line, but but in some way, I don't either. Because oh. is it such a null effect in that specific situation for me? I'm talking about for yeah. me. I'm not talking about for other people. But I think but it's important because I think we got a workshop together here, the three minds at this table and Izzy, uh, <laughs> about how much do we need to care versus the technology that's available to us to be able to find it. So like even if we did care, we don't yet have the technology to find out if the food we're being sold is proper. So like, can you talk a little bit about like DNA barcoding? Because I'm assuming that's like one of the technologies or patterns that you've kind of created to be able to, for at least consumers to feel a little bit better about what they're eating or? Yeah, sure. So uh, in my lab, some of the main testing we do is DNA. So what happens with food, like if you're looking at say a smoked fish or a canned fish, um, like we mentioned, it gets really difficult to tell what the fish is. You know, if you if you buy a whole fish and you know how to identify it with, you know, what it looks like, you can say, okay, that's a Chinook salmon. When you process it down to a canned fish or even a filet, sometimes it can be difficult. But what remains intact is the DNA. So in my lab, we can take products that have been heavily processed, like a pet food, for example. You, you can't even recognize what's in there. Um, we can take those DNA signatures and identify the species in there. 
So that's a, a method that's becoming more and more prevalent um, in food authenticity is testing using DNA-based tests. Where in the line do we need to be using that technology? And is that tech that like I could use? Like so do I trust? And when you're evaluating if Eli can use it, think low bar. Yeah, very, very <laughs> low. But it's a re- real question. Like, okay, cool. This tech exists. It's in your lab. Is it helpful to give it to Tyson to use? Or yeah. is it better for me to have it at home before? Um, so it's be- it's good. Like earlier, early in the supply chain, it's good to verify your ingredients. Um, so it's more like... Uh, a company could require their suppliers mm-hmm. to have DNA testing of their product, you know, what's being supplied to them. And that could be a first step in verifying that they're getting authentic ingredients. Um, at the consumer level, it's going to be a bit more difficult to run those DNA tests. Um, although there are, a, there is a big movement towards getting more portable um, equipment and easier to use equipment. So it's more like a small um, thing that can plug into a USB drive and you just add your sample and it runs the analysis for mm-hmm. you. So in the future, I think it will become more possible and e- more feasible for the consumers to be testing their food. Right. Um, at this point, we're not quite there yet. Um, but those gadgets will also help in the food processing facilities to rapidly test products on the production line and make sure that they are, have authentic ingredients. And some companies are actually already doing this. So, okay, cool. That was yeah. going to be my next question is how hard is it for the companies then to implement and is it expensive? Is there, you know, what what's next for those companies? What's something they can walk away with? Yeah, so the they can do it. There's technology out there to do it. There's, you know, scientists that can work with them um, and implement these technologies or they can also send their product out to a third-party test lab for DNA testing. Um, so there's a variety of ways to test your product to verify authenticity. Um, and then the the issue, though, is that costs money, right? right? So if you're a company and you're going to implement this additional testing program on top of everything you're already doing, you may en- end up having to increase the price of your product, mm. um, which depends what your consumers are looking for. So if your consumers value that food authenticity, then it may be worth it. If the consumers don't care, then what's the incentive for the company to start implementing that? Good point. And I want to talk about incentives again real quick because if the company – I think the average company is going to look at scientific testing – sorry, the companies that don't do it right now, they're going to look at scientific testing as another piece of overhead in addition to whatever – facility monitoring whatever regulations that they already kind of have to go through from a city state municipality fda perspective right and i i know none of that so Companies i don't know already roll their eyes that they have to get this usda organic sticker which is they just a lot if you ask a lot of like consumer packaged goods companies that we work with they'll just be like oh it's like a like pay to play thing man like, wow uh, takes gotta, so long yeah so i can imagine them doing the same mm-hmm. same eye rolls for this and the people started paying for the usda organic stickers when they noticed consumers, consumers. were demanding it right oh it can't be on a whole food shelf without that so whatever let's we got to pay this cost to do in business it seems like it's not there yet for this dna testing stuff 
for whatever reason, but eventually it could be there and then it becomes this part of it. But yeah, I mean, if you add overhead to a company, they're immediately be like, no one's asking for it. Yeah, and that's why I think the average company, you know, won't look at it until they have to because there's either consumer demand for it or, or the demand for it on their label. And then on top of that, like I know it's not the educational mission to research bad companies and then call them out. Like your job is to, we're presenting an introductory study because we think this conversation should be had. We think people should get funding for more of this to make sure that we can stay safe as a society. Like I get both sides. Who's going to call these people out though? Because I think they should be called out. And I think that's where if the companies aren't going to call themselves out and the education community, that's not their main objective. Who exists to do that? And I think the only time we see rampant consumer feedback is when people get sick, right? When people ate something and trace it back to either a food company or a restaurant or whoever it is, change starts to happen because people are, the consumer, the consumer shift in their wallet is happening. Is that the only way for us? Like, tell you are people is. test test subjects basically until something bad happens and then we adapt from there? Is that basically our entire history as a globe where <laughs> it has to be bad before we do change? Or, or can the three of us figure out a way to where if we have more conversations and you know, there's a real reason why we should be calling these people out. I just want to mention there there have been instances where, you know, fraudsters are being called out. So one example was in San Diego, the city attorney's office did DNA barcoding testing of at sushi restaurants. And they found eight sushi restaurants that were selling fake lobster rolls. So it didn't have any lobster in it. Um, and they called out those restaurants and fined them. So there are instances, mm. you know, and that was probably a result of all of the rise in public awareness of seafood mislabeling. And the attorney's office actually has the power to call people mm. out and um, implement punishments. Um, and then more recently, just in December, um, they released the, the results. The New York State Attorney's Office did a bunch of seafood testing at grocery stores, and they called out the stores where they found fraudulent fish. And they found... They actually found a kind of a lower, I think it was 66% of, of sna- red snapper was not red snapper. So they actually have a, some genuine red snapper in New York. <laughs> my, my, my head just went to this jail scene where this guy's like, hey, man, what you in for? <laughs> and the guy was like, I was a grocer and I sold a lot of red snapper. <laughs> Out the back, bro. Guess what? None of it was real. Son. None of it. Well, I, I mean, but I'm really thankful for hearing, though, that that's, that's I, I had zero instances. And that makes me think that there are county and municipal institutions that can't, like, it wouldn't be that weird for them to implement something like that. City attorney, okay. I don't know if about every city attorney is going to care. I'm assuming a city attorney got a, a lobster roll. And he was like, this isn't lobster. We're doing something about this. I just paid $34 for this BS. But it's public is awareness. it health? Is it county health? Is it the people that you're getting your permits from? Like These are all things that are in place that if there's ramp something rampant going on in your community, 
There's now an incentive because there's a political win that can be had. You're the city council member that cracked down on restaurants overcharging the public. Great. You'll win again because (laughs) the public's stoked about you, right? I can now, like, understand some of those incentives. They probably go through. Those incentives, though, are probably muddied the same way that, like, big companies packaging big meat are, like, incentivized. Like, the... They'll only bring it up like those city officials will bring it up when there's enough people outraged about it. So they they still follow the same wave of interest that the companies do, that we, the media do, you know, like they're they're not going to do anything until I don't think it's one guy who's like, I got defrauded on <laughs> tomorrow at work. That's all we're focusing on. Like he goes into his whatever sheriff's office. Like that's just not happening. You know, sheriff should be cracking down <laughs> on that. Like, so that's that's one of those things. Is like it it goes back to the first thing we talked about. Is like, who cares? Why care? And at what point should we start caring more? And it's just this wave of we got to draw these lines somewhere so we could talk about it. And that's I am appreciative of just having this forum to be able to talk about it mm-hmm. because it's it's complex. It's not something that we're thinking of, but we're consuming so damn much all the time. I love sushi, and I just at the point when someone was like, "The sushi you're ordering isn't the sushi you're getting," I was like, "Damn!" You felt some type of way. Well, I thought I should. I thought I should feel some type of way. That was the most concerning part about the whole thing. Is that like I was outraged, but that was just like the outrage culture part of me. Not that I had no idea why. I was like, "I'm still fine." <laughs> Knock on wood. Like I didn't get. I haven't been sick from sushi ever. Knock on wood. Watch tomorrow. <laughs> tapeworm the size of a fucking football field wrapped around my stomach like but again i had no reason to be outraged other than i thought i was duped that's it but it was just a headline that duped me i had a great time at sushi with whoever i was with you know like it's it's one of those things like we have to create lines and outrage to make progress a little bit like if that's one thing we do on the media side is just having this conversation and talking about yo you're being defrauded here and there like Take a look at it now before it actually hurts you in the future. Like you might not be getting hurt now. It may not be that drastic a thing on your life, but even a little bit more awareness of it can make your eating situations a little bit better. Could you know? I'm realizing why I like this conversation is because uh, it also gives added weight to the role that Eli, you and I play, and our entire organization plays in just getting word out about things that can affect you because doctor when we when we came into this industry we were very much so like we don't have to cover hard news we're talking about food like we get to eat a lot like that's what those those are the things that kind of drove our curiosity but as we've matured as a publication these conversations are important And I also don't know of that many forums where these conversations can happen. And so, again, it's like I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I'm really excited about having these conversations because, again, I don't think our readers are listening or reading journals. I just don't think they are. I don't think they're reading. I think they're on Instagram or they're listening to this podcast. And so it's like. There's this weight of publishers being able to adapt bodies of work. Your life's work is being presented in forms that doesn't cross our desk unless we search for them. 
but we got to search for him. Dr. James Bond Helberg. <laughs> Dr. Helberg, I have a question. Uh, uh-huh. Is he producer here? Are big companies more or less likely to get away with food fraud? Because they have the money and means to get around regulations, ideally, but they have the most to lose if they get caught. Does it matter how big the company is or is it, well, yeah, does it matter if they're a small company or a big company? Are they more likely to, to do it? That's a great question. Um, they're probably more likely to get caught if they're a large company because they're processing so much product and the economic deception is going to be so big that like Department of Justice pursues cases that become, you know, where you have this huge amount of money being deceived. So you have the danger of like going bankrupt and having um, the feds come after you because of this. Um, Whereas a smaller company probably is going to kind of be under the radar unless they get somebody tips them off about it. So I don't know who's more likely to be doing it, but in terms of getting caught, I would say like the larger companies are at a greater risk. And I think because of that, and because they care about producing a good product, a lot of big companies do put a lot of effort into verifying their supply chain and their suppliers. Um, Whereas smaller companies, some I'm sure are fabulous about it and others maybe Fly by night. Yeah. (laughs) Because one of the things that like came to mind when thinking about that question, it's a sports reference, but Alex Rodriguez, like highest paid baseball player, could afford the best steroids, wasn't caught for years. And then as soon as it happened, his whole kingdom, everything that he built, right. boom, just fell. Yeah, there's so much to lose. And I think that's a big incentive for companies about why they should be looking at food fraud, because... If you have something like the melamine, you know, a lot of um, like Jeff was saying, you know, a lot of consumers don't care if there's like a little bit of pork mixed in with your uh, sheep or something. But um, you have the danger if you're not verifying your supply chain, you have the danger of something like the melamine incident Mm -hmm. happening. And that caused bankruptcies. People were um, two people in China were executed um, associated oh, with that. Yeah. Um, oh I was going to ask if there were repercussions. I didn't yeah. realize that there were yeah. repercussions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was an extreme case, right? And a lot of people went to prison for that. Um, in the U.S., you know, usually it's more of like your company goes bankrupt, you get fined millions of dollars, and you may face some prison time. Yeah. Of the papers that you've written and the studies that you've explored, what pushed you to pet food and catfish and gaming meat specifically? And was there a process for deciding? Because, you know, those are very specific things. Obviously, game meat, catfish products, and then the pet food study, which was really wild. What makes you, what, like, what's your next study and how do you choose it? Yeah, so we think about... Um First of all, my area of expertise originated in seafood, so I tend to look at seafood products. Um, And then I kind of expanded that to animal products when I started looking at pet foods and meats. Um, So where we, how we decide like what specific things like pet food, how we decide pet food, we look at what's been done and where are there knowledge gaps. So Mm. have there been other studies on this topic? We found a few that had, maybe one had looked at five pet food products, right? So a very small scale. So we upped the scale to, I think we tested about 50 products in that study. 
Um, and so we look at areas where there hasn't been a lot done and there's a potential for fraud to occur. So with pet food, you have all these processed ingredients going into this food. You can't recognize it. You're not even eating it. Your animal is. They can't tell you if it tastes like yeah. <laughs> like beef or pork or chicken. Um, so uh, there was a big incentive for that one. And then um, like game meats, another one where there's not a lot of research done. So we kind of look at where has there not been much research and where is there opportunities for fraud? So um, yeah, with the catfish, there's some labeling regulations that went into place recently um, with catfish. So we wanted to see if people were following those, for example. Of the studies that you've done, have there any been, have there been any really surprising pieces of data or stories that kind of came from your research? Because again, when you read this paper, you realize how much, how much you're looking at different perspectives, right? From if it's 25 companies that you're analyzing, if you're reading 12 different papers on the subject already to be able to give you kind of a baseline for that study. Is there anything that just kind of wildly surprised you in when you found it? Um, I think the pet food study, we were really surprised. We found about 40% of the products. What we found with our testing did not match what was on the label in some way or another. So for example, there was a lot of undeclared things. So we would detect pork and it wasn't declared on the label. So that was surprising. I didn't realize there would be like that high of a percentage of products. Um, and then with the game meat study, again, that was just, you know, weird meats that were being swapped for each other. And one thing that was interesting is we looked at four different distributors and the one that committed like the most fraud and it appeared to be intentional because of the economic deception, they actually um, got in trouble by the FDA for similar reasons, for like mislabeling their bear meat. And they ended up um, going under, I think, because they were, you know, under increased scrutiny by the government. I mean, if you're mislabeling your meat, it's like, what else are you doing? Wrong? Right. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a good indicator, right? Yeah, it's, it's like, like <laughs> I can imagine that place is probably not too clean. Or, right. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of a domino effect. So that's why corners, it is, yeah, yeah, like drawing a line there is good. Like if the product that you are selling is already not what as advertised, like everything else in your business model should be up for scrutiny. Right. Um, Dr. Helberg, another question. Um, I know a lot of the stuff that, that you guys have been talking about has involved products that you can find in a grocery store but I see a few things on the table that just haven't been, I don't think we've touched on yet. So what are some things that when we're walking down the aisles that have been affected by food fraud before or might potentially still be affected? Like I'm looking at that pepper right now. It's a peppercorn okay. grinder. Yeah, so pepper is really interesting because it has a really long history of fraud. So even dating back to Roman times, there's instances of pepper um, being fraud, you know, fraudulent pepper being sold. So some of the old practices are still in use today. Um, so for example, adding um, dirt or other plant material in with your pepper and, you know, it kind of increases the bulk. Um, dried juniper berries actually look a lot like pe dried peppercorn. So sometimes those will be mixed in at kind of a small percent, you know, maybe about 10% of the peppercorn would be juniper berries. Um, mixed in. Wait, 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 wait. You said pepper dirt. Gate. You said dirt. 
<laughs> we just not get. We're just, gonna, just straight into juniper berries. You said dirt. So is that because is that is is that a result of like them just not cleaning the the pepper corn properly, or are they actively is someone actively putting dirt? It's my understanding that people actively put in fillers, so that could include some dirt or dust. Like um, sometimes you can take the dust from like the the spice processing facility, sweep up the dust and add it back into the product. <laughs> sweep it up. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I haven't witnessed this firsthand, but this is what I've read about in terms of spice fraud. So there's a lot of time, a lot of different ways you can add in like different plant material to kind of boost up the product, the oh weight God. of the product. I'm afraid to ask about this. Is this a jar of olives? Oh yeah. <laughs> I slay these nightly. I just pop a new one. I keep seven in my fridge at a time and then I just open it up. Why? What's wrong with these whole green so olives? So I brought those because I wanted to talk about a really interesting case of olive fraud that happened a few years ago. And this is something that's been recorded um, other times as well, but this was just one uh, specific case in particular. Um, Interpol, you know, the international mm-hmm. police organization, every few years they do this big thing called called Operation Opsin, and they target um, substand drug or they target craft um, trafficking of substandard food and beverages. So these large crime rings actually traffic substandard food and beverages because there's a lot of money to be made. Um, so one of the things they found, so Interpol goes after them every few years they, in this operation. They found in Italy. Um, the fraudsters were taking olives, and they're typically like the substandard olives that are discolored. They're soaking them in a copper sulfate solution, which gives them this nice bright green color, um, and then selling the the paint. They're called painted olives, um, and this is a practice that's you know people have used copper sulfate to color foods in the past for fraudulent purposes, and it actually has health issues. You know you eating copper, you're going to have some health problems. Um, but they, this was a major um, crime that they had found, and um, they busted the so what, fraudsters. What next, doctor? What, what, what's in your lab right now that <laughs> is in my supermarket right now? Hold up, hold up. Can we talk about the chocolate? Because you didn't, you didn't really get into the chocolate when you were talking about the chocolate and the, um, the wine. Okay, we can talk about the chocolate, and then I want to hear. I want to hear what. <laughs> okay. What we're gonna crack uh, down chocolate. I just brought chocolate. I'm not an expert in chocolate, but I brought chocolate because of the Valentine's mm-hmm. theme. So the chocolate and the wine. So we talked about the wine. Um, you know, different ways wine can be defrauded, and um, with chocolate, the one of the main things I found was um, counterfeit chocolate. So where um, people are taking, you know substandard chocolate and putting it under a a fake label of like a chocolate brand that's well recognized. Um, So this happens globally. I'm not sure how much it happens in the U.S., but it's one of the main ways of chocolate fraud. Um, There's other types of fraud where like the cocoa butter, you can have um, other types of fats mixed in with cocoa butter um, so that it's, you know, substandard or sometimes lard can be mixed in or other vegetable fats. Um, so I just wanted to bring that just in case people are eating chocolate for Valentine's Day, something um, nice to think about when you're eating your chocolate. It's going to kill your entire chocolate buzz. <laughs> no, I love chocolate. I, I eat chocolate every day. So, Is there anything here in the States with chocolate we should be aware of? Well, I'm uh, not going to name the brand that's on the table oh, right no. now. But, uh, I mean, is there – I don't know. Now I feel like I should – 
understand what chocolate I should be eating or because I don't know who to ask. Like if I go by, this isn't Hershey's, but if I just go by like a Hershey's bar, like should I be suspicious of that Hershey's bar? I don't know. I haven't seen many studies in the U.S. on like chocolate. I haven't seen. Mm. Here we go. A new area for research. So yeah. Okay. So what? Well, because I would imagine you're just, I mean, olives, olive oil, wine, these things all make tons of sense to me because there are premium products in the category. It's a that if, level. That, <laughs> that, yeah, that, no joke. I mean, Italian mobsters connected with olive oil. A lot of it from Portugal. Like, there's a lot of stuff that goes with premium products because the American palate or the global palate, for that matter, can't tell the difference. Mm. So if... If you're in Whole Foods and you want to buy a $24 olive oil and you want to be a brand next to that brand, well, if you dip it in copper sulfate, you can have a brand that looks like the olive oil and then also people aren't trained to know the difference until until J- Dr. James Bond, <laughs> <laughs> until Dr. Helberg processes it, right? And I think that's... That's what's interesting to me is I would fo- I would follow the premium categories of food mm. and that's where I would vote for research to happen although I won't be doing the research myself. <laughs> and with wine there was an interesting story I didn't get a chance to mention yet. It was um this guy I actually have his name written out Rudy Kerniawan. Um he was found he was selling counterfeit wines for at least 8 years. And he was selling really expensive wines, like at at auctions and to wealthy wine collectors. He made millions of dollars. And what he was doing, he was mixing low-cost wines. And he figured out somehow how to mix the low-cost wines to make them taste like a high-end wine. I don't know how he figured that out, but he was filling empty bottles of um, you know really high-end wine and making these counterfeit labels. And he got away with it for a really long time. Calling you out, Rudy, <laughs> here on the Ketchup Podcast. <laughs> oh, what's next? What are we going to call out next? I, th- I think that's a good a good button. I want to know what what exclusive. What's what's in the lab right now? What are you? Uh, what is it? Uh, so we've been starting to look at dietary supplements more because that's Ooh. an area that doesn't get as much um, in terms of regulations. Huge growth in that category. <laughs> yeah, though. and a, a lot of growth. Um, a lot of consumer, you know, consumers c- taking dietary supplements and not as much scrutiny on what's on the label. Um, so we've been primarily focused on the ones that have animal products because that's where my area of expertise is. Uh, we looked at shark cartilage pills recently, did a bunch of testing of those. Oh, fish oil supplements? How about those? We haven't tested those, um, mostly because the it's kind of difficult to get the DNA from the oils mm. um it's kind of a more difficult analysis so um i don't know if we'd have much success with that but yeah that's another area to look into i can't shake the image doctor of you repelling from a gnc rooftop and <laughs> <laughs> with your whole team following behind in suit <laughs> just raiding the store of all their bullshit <laughs> oh my goodness well keep us posted on on those studies doctor. i will <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate you. Yeah, it's been great talking with you guys. (laughs) 
Guys, if you like that episode, leave a review in the iTunes store or tag us on Instagram if you're listening on Spotify. Let us know what your favorite episode was. And if you learned something this episode, um, my name is Eli. You can follow me at Book of Eli. Jeffrey Kutnick at Jeffrey Kutnick, and that's Jeffrey with the G. And uh, Dr. Helberg, where can people connect with you, read your papers, um, just become part of a community? Um, that's I don't have my website memorized. <laughs> <laughs> just walk on to Chapman's campus and ask. Yeah, if you if you search for uh, my name under Chapman University, then uh, you'll find my profile and a link to my website. Um, Dr. Rosalie Hel- um, Helberg. Uh, she has a profile on the Chapman website, so that's probably a good a good yeah. place to start. And then you'll be able to search her author name in any journal that she's been published in as well. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thanks for coming. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, guys. Happy Valentine's Bye. Day. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs>